I broke into my quarantine food stockpiles yesterday, or very specifically the treats that you recommended I buy should I have to self-isolate. Um, so the soup is safe, but it was the, the whiskey and the shortbread took a bit of a hit. That's like the most Scottish thing I've ever heard. I mean, the only thing that would be more Scottish than that would be if you had raided your neighbor's house in order to steal their whiskey and shortbread. You know, slaughtered a local sheep along the way, cursed an Englishman and made a delicious haggis feast for the entire family. But I think this bodes well because I feel like I feel like being Scottish is great preparation for social distancing. Ah, indeed, yeah. I mean, if I'm going to self-isolate, I'm going to self-isolate like a like a Highland pensioner. Exactly, just alcoholism and like hatred of your neighbours. It's, the, <laughs> it's been the way of your people for many generations. Look, it's stood as well so far. Hello and welcome to Don't Touch Your Face, foreign policy's daily podcast on all things coronavirus. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer here at Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, senior editor at FP. So on today's episode, we're going to look at the issue of quarantine, which is shaping up to be one of the biggest coronavirus-related stories of the week. On Monday, Italy locked down the entire country. And on Tuesday, New York State created a containment zone just north of New York City. There's also now a handful of U.S. lawmakers who are self-isolating after fears that they may have come into contact with people known to have the virus. Isolating whole countries, regions, or even just yourself is a very difficult decision to make, but the consequences of not doing so when it's needed can be dire. Later on in the episode, we're going to speak to the journalist Lauren Teixeira, who's now been under quarantine not once, but twice, first in China and then in Maryland when she returned to the United States. But first, James, China enacted the world's biggest quarantine in a bid to control the virus. And now we're seeing that the rate of infections in China is beginning to slow. Is that a sign that quarantine works? It seems to be, yeah. I mean, it's always hard to tell with Chinese data, especially once politics gets involved. And from the moment that the top leaders took control of the virus, uh, well, took control of fighting the virus... (laughs) Uh, I started to have worries about the numbers. But we're now seeing evidence that the uh, quarantine measures in Wuhan really did have a serious effect, that they reduced the rate of transmission dramatically below what the virus would need to survive and spread. The question at this point is whether the numbers in the rest of the country are accurate, and I have many more doubts about those. Um, I think that it's very obvious that containment lockdown had a huge impact on Uh, wiping out the virus. I worry that we're going to see kind of reinfection as sort of pockets emerge, Mm. especially because now you have this problem whereby since China is supposed to have won the fight, um, any new cases are going to start to be politically dangerous for the people in whose provinces and whose towns they emerge. And that leads us back to the situation that we had in, in January in the first place when the outbreak was covered up to avoid political instability or domestic worries. And that could be a cycle that we see kind of repeating. It's very hard in these kind of systems to get people to be permanently honest. But there's no doubt, I think, that isolation, quarantine, lockdowns, social distancing, these are really extreme forms Mm -hmm. of the kind of advice that health experts have been giving everywhere. Stay out of public places, reduce social contact, all this kind of thing. And we're seeing these measures work on a voluntary basis in South Korea, too, where the rate of new infections is also rapidly dropping. And so until last year, you'd lived in China for 15 years? 15 years, yeah. 
And so what are you hearing from your friends back in China who have been through quarantines? Like, how did they get through it? What was it like? And what do you do if you have kids in quarantine? So, you know, everybody was stressed. The people who were coping best were people who made structured time for themselves, who created new sort of schedules and things to break up the day, and who participated in remote social activities. So, of course, a lot of online stuff, Mm -hmm. a lot of gaming, um, virtually. Um, Universally, people said having pets made it much easier because you were able to go out and, like, walk your dog in the compound, even though you kept sort of distance from other people. But just having a living thing, another living thing in the house uh, really, really helped. Um, And with kids, um, it seemed actually to be that the worst was to have, like, teenagers sort of 13, 14, completely driven mad by the whole thing. Small children, like a lot of parents, made play areas. They built sort of areas in the living room or whatever, little fortresses, tried to come up with new types of classes or things that the kids wouldn't otherwise learn. And that helped everybody kind of grind their way through this. Oh, boy. How many people were quarantined in China, actually? Is there a total figure? So the minimum who were under some kind of lockdown, Mm -hmm. 760 million. That's nearly 10% of the world's population. That's incredible. And we, you know, we're just going to see more and more of this. I mean, we've just seen Italy put these measures into place. That's another 60 million. Um, I would be amazed if we didn't see serious numbers in other countries very soon. Mm -hmm. And so what about here in the United States? I mean, it was just over two weeks ago that, you know, you began in the office kind of saying to folks, like, look, you should maybe think about preparing, getting in some tinned foods, some cleaning products, that kind of things. You know, and I went out that night and I bought in some basics and I honestly felt a little bit ridiculous at the time. Um, But I kind of told myself, well, you know, we'll eat this eventually. So even if we don't have to do social distancing, self-isolation, the food's not going to go to waste. Fast forward to now, just two weeks later, and we've got several members of Congress who are self-isolating. Yeah, we have people like Matt Geitz who was mm-hmm. mocking the idea that measures need to be taken by wearing a you know, full-on gas mask <laughs> on the floor of the house the other day, who is now in self-quarantine. We have Ted Cruz who voluntarily self-quarantined. And, you know, we're going to see more and more of this. It's inevitable as contact it becomes clear who's been in contact with the virus. And, you know, I think... One of those hurdles that we have to overcome is that sense that we're being ridiculous, that we're being panicky. Partially because if you're in the sort of respectable news media, you spend a lot of time telling people that other stories are overblown or exaggerated. And you have to, I think, start listening to that sense of fear a little bit more. I don't know if you know the book by Gavin De Becker, The Gift of Fear, which talks about talks about how one of the big problems in situations of potential violence is people telling themselves that their fear is silly or stupid, people telling themselves that they should be more rational. And I think you can make smart decisions based on fear, based on risk assessment and nervousness without panicking. You know, what's your advice based on what you've learned from people in China? You know, what should people be stocking up on? How should people be planning in advance? Should they unexpectedly be told you have to self-quarantine, you've come in contact with someone with coronavirus? Yeah, or even it doesn't have to be them. It could be entire, as we've seen, just regions locking down overnight, Mm. cities locking down overnight. The main thing I think that you should have in is medical supplies. Not really so much for treatment of the virus when you should be going to uh, medical facilities if at all possible, but just because those are going to run short in those kind of situations. So if you have any kind of conditions that you need medication for and you really want to go to your doctor, and I think doctors are getting a lot more accepting about the need to write these scripts now to try and lay in, you know, at least two weeks to a month of these kind of supplies. And then also 
we, the experience in China has been so far that supply chains have stayed pretty intact. Mm-hmm. So the supermarkets have not been emptied out. People have been able to get food, um, though we don't know what it looks like in the villages yet, really. We don't have a lot of data there. But the things that have proved really frustrating to people are the things that you would wander down the street to 7-Eleven at like 8.30 at night to try and get. Like toilet paper is actually a classic one. Mm-hmm. Um, but chocolate bars, soft drinks, these kind of things. Yeah. So I think as well as having the sort of sensible soup and rice and so on, uh, stockpiles, you want to have like treats. You want to have the stuff that will give you that little psychological boost to get through what's a very stressful experience. Like shortbread and whiskey. Yeah, like shortbread and whiskey, you know. And now for today's interview. Lauren Teixeira is an American journalist working in Chengdu, where she's been covering music, culture and architecture for foreign publications, including foreign policy itself. Lauren, you had to go into quarantine when the coronavirus hit China, correct? That's correct. Um, I wouldn't say it was an orthodox quarantine because I left China before the extreme lockdown of Chengdu happened in which people were prevented and monitored as they came in and out of their apartment complexes. But I was there while things uh, were getting uh, stricter and people were being encouraged not to leave their house and everything had shut down. So I was there during a fairly creepy time when I sensed things were getting worse and the day before I left, uh, they started instituting a policy that you had to sign into your apartment complex and report your temperature every time you came in. And then uh, a worker from the Shuqiu, like the the community, uh, what it's called sometimes, which is the lowest level of government in China and, of course, the, the lowest and um, most intimate level of monitoring, uh, knocked on my door and everyone else's door in the apartment complex and also asked me to sign a form and get data from me. And so that was the sign to me that things were going to go into intense lockdown. And the next day I flew back to the States. Lon, the first time you self-quarantined, you were living by yourself in Chengdu. But when you returned to the States, you had to stay with your parents and they also self-quarantined. What was it like being stuck with your family for two weeks? (laughs) <laughs> and your family are very nice. And they're very nice. You've met them, you know. Um, no, I've, I've always gotten along really well with my parents. And, you know, we live in like a suburban house, so it's not the same as being quarantined in a, a two-bedroom apartment, which, you know, the vast majority of, of urban Chinese are being quarantined in. They're really small. Uh, so I felt lucky for that. And um, it wasn't terrible, uh, and it wasn't great either. I think the thing that made it not... Uh, made me not want to scratch my eyeballs out is that I knew it would end, right? Like in China, it was indefinite. I knew that things were only going to keep getting worse and I knew and there was no end in sight. So at the time I left, I knew things were getting worse and now it's a month later and things have only finally started to lift a little bit. So my friends in Chengdu have been in a very severe lockdown for a month and it has been terrible for them, honestly. And so just knowing that I wasn't in that situation, uh, I think helped a lot and made me grateful. Um, I remember one thing that bothered me so much is my dad's chewing. Like he just, he chews so loudly (laughs) and it's never really bothered me before. And even I knew it was a classic symptom of cabin fever is to seize on something really small like that. But still, I like could not help myself. I was like, you chew too loud. Um, And I don't know, that's just kind of the classic thing that agitates you when you're cooped up with people for a long time. 
So, Lauren, were you told to quarantine upon returning to the United States? Yeah. So I flew into JFK and uh, there were people pulling aside people who had landed from China and asking them to quarantine and they gave you a little packet. But there, no one ever followed up. What kind of things have your friends in Chengdu been reporting in terms of how they feel, how the quarantine has affected them? Jesus. Um, it's pretty bad. Like, uh, I don't know. My friend Darcy, she said, I feel like a zombie. <laughs> like, it's not been good. And, like, they try to keep a positive attitude, um, maybe just for me. I don't know. But it's really hard. And it they are just so bored and so depressed. And I think maybe you try to ration out time and like in two days, I'll be able to leave the apartment complex and visit my friend or like so it's good to have like events on the horizon. But things just started getting like more and more stringent. So like uh, my friend Gloria, she has a boyfriend and they visit each other fairly often. But in her district, it got so that people not from her apartment complex cannot enter. So there was a point at which her boyfriend could no longer visit her. And but although she could visit him because he lives in a different district, which was not as stringent, apparently. So it was to that level where you literally just couldn't visit people. Um, I know my friend Gloria got really into baking. She's baked some truly elaborate creations. I've seen some other like cooking tips and sort yeah. of people getting <laughs> very into their hobbies, which seems yes. to be productive. Yes. What, what kind of sort of information are we seeing out of China as a whole as to the effects that this is having on people's marriages and on their health and so on? Mm, I mean, overall uh, negative effects. Like, it's. I don't think anyone's relationship has really come out of this. Really been strengthened by spending too long with a significant other. I think it's. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you see uh, reports of skyrocketing divorce and also, um, I mean, domestic abuse, which is really bad. Um, And I think also just like a lot of. I think the relationship between young Chinese people and their parents is always tense because of the pressures from the Chinese school system, and I think or what I understand from a lot of, you know, Chinese teenagers is that it's been incredibly hard to be with their parents in like a semi-emotionally abusive uh, relationship with literally no escape for a month. So uh, I think it's been really tough. That was Lauren Tashier discussing her expenses of quarantine in Chengdu, China, something that is probably going to touch quite a lot of uh, listeners of this podcast in the upcoming weeks and months, unfortunately. Oh, it gives me shivers. Oh, I know. My uh, my boyfriend a couple of weeks ago was like, oh, you know, I think it would be kind of fun to be quarantined together for a couple of weeks. And I just looked at him and I was like, think about it. <laughs> just really think about it for a second. And then he kind of looked to the side and started shaking his head violently and was like, never mind. <laughs> I, feel, I feel that there's potential for some sort of partner swap situations here. You know, just like, I mean, obviously you'd want to make sure they were checked out, but just swapping them around for a little bit of variety. Did you see that piece in Slate? Someone the, wrote yes, yes, yes. I love it so much. The um, should I should I close my open marriage because my mother-in-law is immunocompromised. Yeah, I'm like yeah, yeah, yes. This is a good excuse <laughs> to close your open marriage. So excuse to end your adultery in the eyes of God, you sinner. <laughs> So before we wrap up, we've started to have questions come in to us um, from readers and from listeners of the podcast. And I just want to go to one from a foreign policy reader called Trevor, um, who's looking to travel to the Dominican Republic, like a lot of people. He's booked his vacation for the year, but is now looking at this very rapidly spreading epidemic. James, what advice are you giving to people who are trying to decide on whether or not they should cancel their holidays or work trips abroad? So to be honest, my advice as a rule at the moment is cancel. 
The mm. situation is too random, too in flux. Things could change at any moment. But, of course, people have invested a lot in this. If you're not going to cancel, there's a few things you should do. You should make sure that you're prepared for any kind of work disruptions, life disruptions caused by being stuck abroad for two or three more weeks because if, if borders close or if you have to quarantine when coming back into the United States, that could very easily happen. You need to be taking more luggage and you know more clothing and so on as a result of that. Um, and you need to be extremely aware of the healthcare situation and of what it would be like for you as a foreigner to try and navigate another country's healthcare system. Do you speak the language? Do you even know where to go mm-hmm. in the event of a disaster there? And you should be checking with the CDC, State Department, and the Johns Hopkins map of uh, coronavirus cases to try and get a sense of what the epidemic is like in the country you're visiting. Right. I mean, even our boss, our executive editor for news and podcasts, Dan, had to cancel a trip to Israel. He was supposed to go tomorrow. Yeah, Israel has just put in this rule that anybody coming into the country has to self-quarantine for two weeks, which would have been his entire trip. Right. I mean, he would have had sort of, you know, 12 hours at the end to to see family and (laughs) and say goodbye. And yeah, I mean, these are incredible restrictions. And I think one of the reasons why we're seeing countries like Israel, Singapore, Taiwan, um, move ahead fast on these and be more successful in containing the virus as a result um, is because these are quite fragile countries, countries that have a, a strong sense of either security or of being at the end of a very fragile resource chain. Mm-hmm. That's something we're going to be picking up on later in the week when we talk about biosecurity and the new borders. So that's it for today's edition of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon. I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. Executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you have any questions about the coronavirus, you can email us at don'ttouchyourface at foreignpolicy.com. In the meantime, don't forget to wash your hands. And don't touch your face. <laughs> <laughs>